right, welcome back to the Upside Down U-Turn podcast. Uh, we got a new uh, new person here today. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? You go ahead, Zeb. Hi, uh, I'm Zeb Dempsey. What else do I say? <laughs> I don't know. What uh, what year are you? I'm a <laughs> I'm a junior at Tech. I'm uh, majoring in philosophy and PPE. Okay. And, yeah. Oh. And then yeah. Bobby's back. Bobby again. <laughs> uh, I don't need to say anything else, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess just for clarification, right. uh, we were all in um, a couple classes together for political theory. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's how we know each other. But um, I know this podcast, we wanted to go a little more into theory itself. Uh, specifically with, like, I guess, political philosophy, if you will. Is that the right terminology? Yeah, Kant is definitely just political philosophy. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, we're, we're going to dive into a little bit of Kant um, and then look at a couple, like, practical examples in which we can kind of, like, use his theory to analyze the society that we live in today and then, yeah, go off from that. So if you guys want to... I guess, Zeb, you're the, you're the expert yeah. here, really, <laughs> if you want to just kind of give us a, a little glimpse <laughs> for people that aren't aware or um, well-versed in, in Kant. Um, and we're looking specifically at his, um, what is it, a treatise, I guess you would say, or a book? It's, it's like an informal writing, so it's not writing. one of his formal works on, yeah. on ethics. Okay, but it's um, on perpetual peace. Yeah. So that's, that's the main body of work of Kant that we're going to be looking at today. Um, so yeah, the floor is all yours, Seb. <laughs> um, I guess the the main thing to just the basic thing you need to understand about Kant's ethical thought in general, going into this, um, is so he you know is famous for his like categorical imperative. Essentially, what he thinks is that morality can really only consist in these absolutely necessary universal laws mm-hmm. um, so like you can't lie and there's no exceptions to that it's just you, you can't do it <laughs> right. doesn't it doesn't matter the consequences aren't what you care about here what you care about is sort of the act itself and the way that you get to that is basically so you you have a sort of say you have a sort of maxim, in this case, if it allowed you to lie in this particular instance, maybe because it was for your own benefit. And um, whether or not that is consistent with uh, sort of morality is that you, you sort of ask yourself the question, could I make this into a universal law? Could, could I will that this become something that everyone acted on. Mm-hmm. And so what he's going to say in the case of lying is that any sort of maxim that you have that allows you to lie in this or that situation, what, if you turned it into a universal law that everyone followed, the will would essentially contradict itself because you're willing in this instance that I can lie in order to... Um, I don't know, get some personal gain, but in this sort of instance, but if that became a universal law, then everyone everyone would be lying, so mm-hmm. no one would believe you when you lied. Right. So the will has contradicted itself because you're willing to trick this person so that you get some benefit, but also if it became a universal law, 
they wouldn't believe you and you wouldn't get that universal benefit. Mm-hmm. So it's contradicted itself. And this is just, it doesn't matter the consequences really, it's just about the act itself. Um, and the other important thing, I guess, is that you can get to this just through reason alone. Everyone has access to it who mm-hmm. is able to reason. So um, it's sort of juxtaposed with um, sort of emotions. So and he's, he's comes out very strongly against any sort of theory that tries to pin down morals in some into some sort of emotion or any sort of subjective thing. He wants to say you could just get it through reason mm-hmm. itself and um, the only way to be moral is to just follow it for its own sake. So, right. So uh, essentially the, the rational imperative is that that morality is the necessary like kind of end product of like rationalism, I guess. Like, yeah, yeah. So if you're perfectly rational, you're also perfectly moral, moral essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's his, uh, just like a very basic overview of his ethical thought that I think you would need to mm-hmm. read this because this isn't it doesn't get too complicated, especially into it doesn't really get into any of the, like the epistemology or metaphysics of of what he's talking about. It's mm-hmm. just, this comes after some of his earlier work, works on ethics, so he already has a setup. And if you disagree on him there, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, <laughs> he doesn't go back and disagree with him there. Mm-hmm. This is building off of his moral system, which he's already kind of built the sort of groundwork for. Right. So in, that, in this sense, with um, Perpetual Peace, he's kind of, taking his previous notions of, like, the individual uh, rational being and kind of superimposing that into, like, the international um, sphere, I guess. Yeah. In terms of, like, how states interact with each other. Yeah. So essentially, like, creating a universal global order of, like, a rational uh, morality of states. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just taking morality out of the community when you talk about, you know lying or, or, you know, sort of smaller stuff like that. You're really just talking about sort of a community and then placing it at this you know, higher level, mm-hmm. um, you know, of international politics, <laughs> which... Right. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so I, it seems to be that he's just, he's just trying to um, make a list of duties, essentially, that all countries are sort of morally obligated to follow mm-hmm. and they're morally obligated to follow them because they all have this duty to sort of create a perpetual peace and these sorts of actions are the only thing that will like actually create and sustain that perpetual peace so insofar as we have the duty to get to perpetual peace we also have these duties um to do the things that would actually sort of lead to them mm-hmm. if we were all to sort of follow them. Yeah, and without exemption, right? There's yeah, no, there's no <laughs> exemption. <laughs> very uh, very strict in his yes, guess, interpretation. No, there's no exemption. I mean, for him, it does not matter if the world is going to burn. You need to follow <laughs> these things. 
because the consequences don't matter, <laughs> it doesn't follow the categorical imperative. I mean, I, he's still obviously concerned about the consequences, and I think he can see that through this. He wants to justify that, like, this isn't just an ideal. He wants to say, like, okay, it's also can happen, mm-hmm. and also us following these duties will help it to happen, but still, <laughs> even then, it doesn't matter whether or not it's practically impossible, because uh, that, that's more of an empirical question, um, and he doesn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So how would, I guess, w- so would you l- label him as like a, a mainly normative kind of philosopher, like someone that doesn't really look at the practical as a means of explaining the, or at least not that it's not necessarily useful in explaining situations, but in the sense that it's not as important as reaching that eventual normative conclusion, if you are to be as rational as possible. Um, if, yeah, if, if you're, I mean, yeah, so he is sort of in the appendix of this. He does kind of take on the um, sort of called like political prudence mm-hmm. and the the people who think that uh, making the objection that um, that the human nature just isn't compatible with these kinds of ideals um, mm-hmm. people are always going to act in their self-interest, right? Yeah. Or at least that's the argument. He still there thinks that any sort of political prudence, um, which he kind of defines politics here as, like, using the mechanisms of nature to sort of, like... Yeah, the mechanical course of nature. Yeah, the yeah, mechani- yeah. yeah he, he talks about this a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all constrained by morality. So, yes. <laughs> no, he's not concerned about the consequences. It's just about acting well itself, which Mm -hmm. is acting in accordance with the categorical imperative. And he pulls up another thing um, here in this one, more just related to politics, that it also has to take, you also have to be able to publicize it, which is, it was a similar vein of reasoning as his sort of categorical imperative stuff, but... But again, he still seems concerned in this book like he he, uh, he dedicates a good amount of it to just giving some sort of backing to it, it being practically possible and also sort of tying in the fact that um, following the categorical imperative would still lead to peace and is the best way to lead to peace essentially is if you just sort of follow but <laughs> he still wants to maintain that it doesn't matter that much or right. it doesn't matter as much as just following the doing duty for the sake of duty mm-hmm. which is the most important <laughs> yeah so I guess the holy grail of questions as you know most theorists or like theory finds itself asking itself is like how do you then apply this in a real sense like where where do you take this and and put it into like a practical usage in terms of you know and obviously we can't answer that <laughs> yeah. in one day or whatever but you know like basically what I'm asking is like do you think that Kant's theory is practical in the sense that it gives some value you know what I mean even That's if it's not necessarily the truth you know 
I mean, so... <laughs> I guess putting your opinions like, into this more Well, so. I mean, that's where the sort of practical... How you define does it work in practice or is it beneficial in practice? Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on your sort of normative background. Like, obviously, if you're a uh, sort of consequentialist or if you're just concerned with the consequences, uh, you know, generally... Mm-hmm. Like whether or not this is going to be useful uh, is more of an empirical question, as Kant kind of points out, because uh, it's contingent on whether or not following these duties will actually lead to that sort of end. Okay. Um, but if you're a Kantian, <laughs> yeah. then obviously it has tons of practical importance because it dictates how you should be, um, how you should be acting. I mean, in the same way, uh, like when you talk about. Uh, practical stuff to kind of in the general sense uh, when it comes to Kant in a more like commonplace sense you're talking about like well if I do if I like uh, demolish my army or whatever mm-hmm. would I get like murdered right. by all yeah. the states around me see that that's the question <laughs> like is that a rational like thing to do in the sense that within the system that you're in place like are you really going forward to your eventual goal of like a moral like supreme thing if you're shooting yourself in the foot essentially in the short term by doing that you know what I mean I mean that's so <laughs> for Kant if you're a Kant that's why your sort of normative background matters because mm-hmm. like if you matter if you're concerned about the consequences then obviously that matters like whether or not if you take away your army the question of whether or not other countries will just like destroy you very important in right. a practical sense you're right if you're a Kantian you would say that's kind of secondary. <laughs> and so, yeah. <laughs> to, to just following duty. Right. So, in a Kantian sense, in a strict Kantian sense, because not like all. Sure. Neo, yeah. Like yeah. neo-Kantians aren't all like this. I don't, don't want to pin this on all of them. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's similar to the, um, the murder at the door thing with his his sort of more commonplace morality where, yeah, if the murderer comes to your door and asks where your friend is, you have to, I mean, you don't have to tell him the truth, but you can't lie Mm -hmm. because it's about following duty, not about Kant. So in that sense, if you're a Kantian, yes, it's practical. Mm -hmm. If you care about consequences, which is usually what people think of when they say, like, is it practical? Um, Ah... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it, th- yeah, at that it, point, uh, it's sort of contingent. Sure. Because like whether or not abandoning your army will right, lead you right. to get destroyed is contingent on uh, other environmental factors. And that's assuming as well that I guess the ideo- ideology is separate from the individual trying to enact it necessarily. You know what I mean? Like, if if the Kantian perspective is true to the fullest extent, then it doesn't matter what you specifically as an individual do, so long as your actions mirror his um, normative understanding, essentially. I mean, yeah, well, so you have to... Because that, he would claim, is the best way to achieve that goal is by strictly following it. So it doesn't matter necessarily if you, in the short term, are hindered in the sense that your state is ruined by disbanding <laughs> your army, but in the sense that you're achieving the, the fundamental goal of what perpetual peace tries to, to do. And I think that's what also he's trying to say. It's better to at least try and fail than to not try at all. You know what I mean? Yeah, but he, he, I mean, also, like, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so essentially, mm-hmm. that, that I think that would sum it up a good amount of what he's kind of saying here. It's like, this is these sort of rules are the only ways that we're going to get to perpetual peace. Mm-hmm. Maybe we won't get there. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Hard maybe on that one, yeah. Um, He thinks, I think, for sort of what I saw as sort of religious reasons that, Mm -hmm. I mean, he talked about providence, um, that the sort of, there's this rational end, which is professional peace, Mm -hmm. um, and sort of the duties kind of force you in that direction. But also nature on this one end is leading us to that end. And he does, he talks about practical ways that this can get done, um, which uh, is sort of a state of nature kind of thing, which is kind of caught me off guard because I hadn't, uh, the earliest stuff I had read made that seem kind of, not exactly like where he would go when, (laughs) when I started reading this, but he does talk about how we need to sort of use nature can kind of use people's self-interests to essentially force them towards perpetual peace in the same way that self-interest can force them into like a republic or his sort of idea of, right. of the ideal state. Well, that's the idea of rationalism, right? I mean, ultimately, you're trying to seek not only the best interests of the society as a whole, but by extension yourself. Right. So, not in the sense that you're a perfect utility maximizer, just in your like uh, looking at you as like the the prime agent, but in the sense that like in in the grand scheme, you're benefiting yourself by following that uh, ideology rather than looking yourself in the in the short term. I mean. I'm not exactly sure what he wanted to say about that. Because uh, uh, from what I've read, he doesn't talk... <laughs> the only thing that he talks about in the connection between morality and happiness is that morality is not happiness. It's not derived from happiness. He says, mm-hmm. you know, morality is what makes you worthy of being happy, but it doesn't necessarily get you there. So for him, yes, morality and self-interest, totally separated. Like, if you are following... The moral laws for self-interested reasons, mm-hmm. you are not a moral person. You need to follow the law just because you like respect the law. That's his ideas. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is what he thinks. So even if it coincides with your self-interest, it's not necessarily like do, do you see what I'm trying to say though? Like yeah. if the morality is in your self-interest, yeah, yeah, is yeah. that not pursuing your self-interest? I mean, okay, yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Yes, he is going to say that if it this end will ultimately be for everyone's self-interest because the moral law, like when you get everyone to follow the moral law, mm-hmm. it is essentially what everyone can will. It's sort of the, right. the will of all is what morality is because it's sort of through reason you're projecting out this maxim that you have and seeing like, could everyone hold this? Mm-hmm. And if so, if not, I can't do that. Now, if you get to the sort of... Um, natural conclusion of this where everyone's sort of following it yes you are now in like the ideal society because what the like moral laws are essentially the rules of behavior guiding uh, people in an ideal society essentially um, 
but also he thinks people suck. <laughs> so he, he, he said it was kind of like by, it, yeah. by providence that um, that the sort of direction that nature took us through sort of like the natural, the whatever, like the mechanisms of nature um, also kind of just get us to the same places that reason is trying to get us. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm saying it seems like he... He's in a way not really concerned about the consequences, but also he's really concerned about showing you that this won't just like destroy you. That is also kind of possible. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to work that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of the whole point, right? But yeah, like, isn't it kind of like a problem that Kant is like a Christian, like he's religious, so he like values morality or like kind of abiding by these rules that are like implied to be like religious or about like attaining heaven? Like, doesn't that if you don't believe in God, if you're not a Christian or of those Abrahamic religions, doesn't it kind of like it gives you less of an incentive to even like consider the rules he's putting forward? I well. So for him, if you're acting morally so that you'll get into heaven, you're not acting morally because your uh, will, you know, the reasons that you're you're actually um, doing these things is not out of pure respect for the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he thinks you're rationally compelled to believe in God. <laughs> for um, yeah. he thinks it's sort of this pure practical postulate that you just like have to mm-hmm. um, have. But, I mean, uh, like, based on his... He doesn't argue from yeah. from God whether or not you can believe this uh, if you're not really compelled or you're not... I mean, because even if you're not a Christian now in America, you're still heavily influenced by, you know, yeah. Christian moral ideas. And whether or not you can really accept Kant... Um, if you're not really influenced by those ideas, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. And, I mean, so he doesn't derive it at any point from Christianity, but it's, like, clear. It's it's clear. It's, it's obvious that he yeah. is heavily influenced yeah. by those ideas, and he does mm-hmm. want to support those ideas. So it just seems, like, inseparable, like his faith from his, like, his philosophy, to some degree. To, to a degree. He's not, like... Like, he does come out in the Critique of Pure Reason and, like, attacks rational theology, like the sort of idea that you can come up with these rational proofs of God's existence. And he comes out very critically of that. Um, but, yeah, no, he's still definitely a Christian. And yeah. still, like, throughout his work, like, uh, it's obviously like he's driving at a sort of Christian goal, but he's not doing it by Christian means. Mm-hmm. Whether or not whether or not you have to accept certain sort of Christianized propositions in order to um, really accept his morality, like, th- th- I think there'd be a case for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say probably not. Like, I don't think... It's necessarily inherent because you could formulate the same conceptions through a different cultural lens. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, you could, you definitely could, but Mm -hmm. like, I guess it's a question of like whether or not you would be disposed to accept those sorts of proper positions if you like were coming from a radically different understanding of morality. That's true, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, 
whether or not that's irrational, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I have not worked my way all the way through uh, moral epistemology. Yeah. I don't really know exactly yeah. how this all works, but... I'm going to use the bathroom. Yeah, go ahead. But that's a great, um, I guess, segue into the sense of how universal is it really, you know, of this rational morality, if it is contingent on some previous notion of... Like a of a of like a cultural understanding of rationalism and and morality by extension, you know. Like, I mean, obviously, yes, you can argue that there is a normative, like like universal understanding, but how far are you correct in identifying that? Insofar as you're limited by your, your pre like disposition of of your you know where you come from. See. You're thinking too, like, normally right now. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, no, for Kant, yeah. for Kant it's reason. Right, it's reason. right, right. right. <laughs> so um, it doesn't, like, whatever culture you come from, it doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. you can still do geometry. So, sure. <laughs> like, for him, yeah. yes, this we have access to, I mean, not in the same way and with the same certainty as we have access to geometry and science, but for him, yes, we still have access through to morality through reason by its like pure reason. So it doesn't matter what kind of culture or background you come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that true? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'm not necessarily. I'm not a Kantian. <laughs> sure, because there's the there's the argument I guess you could make of you know what is pure reason then, and how far can people even come close to that because I mean think about it if you are to if you are to claim that there is a, a pure reason whatever that might might be but th- think about humans at least fundamentally as rational beings that doesn't necessarily mean that all people are equally rational right there is a certain element of different capacities of individuals of a, of, of reaching some type of, of rational you know and I mean, even rationalism itself, it's like just because you're creating one pathway of thought of reason doesn't mean it's necessarily less useful. Like if you were to make like a heuristic argument, like it, is there a necessity for you to achieve that pure reason or could you just use some other heuristic just because it's more available because of your cultural background, essentially? You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, well, so, uh, first off, um, <laughs> Kant is kind of racist. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> to be, to be honest. So he has this... I mean, what, 18th century uh, Yeah, that's what he philosopher. says. He does say questionable things about other cultures. Right. Um, as, a, as a good Prussian would. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> I mean, he, he does think, he, he talks about it, at some point in, in this mm-hmm. that um, reason is sort of progressing with culture okay. which I read that and was like hey right yeah is that the, what does that mean key, how does reason progress right the key word there is progress <laughs> I think that's bordering um, determinism as in in that territory you know which I I don't agree with in any capacity I think that's one of the the interesting things about a lot of the uh, or at least with like political theory, how it's fairly multidisciplinary, yeah. is you can approach different concepts from different 
kind of like formulations, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, like from an economic standpoint or a cultural standpoint or a technological standpoint or whatever. And yet there is that uh, constant in terms of like the determinist opinion and, and viewpoint in the sense that things progress naturally over time because in some capacity they're destined to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's in, in and of itself a, a major fallacy. Determinism is just really hard to shake Especially, yeah, that's true. Like, Especially if you're looking from a normative perspective, because you would assume that if things are normative, then there is a determinate uh, effect. Oh, I see, I see. Like determinist in the sense that it's going towards it's sort of like teleological, like it's going towards a goal. Right. Yeah. Not in that things are just determined, just like determined, sort of generally, like. Like, like, not like a sort of scientific causal. No, not explanatory. Like, more, more like you said, teleological. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, but I, th- I think Kant is kind of, he was pretty careful in this to sort of make a lot of his claims uh, about the, like, ought, uh, what states ought to do not contingent on a sort of religious teleological cause. Well, actually, because uh, <laughs> 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 he does say that there is an end, and the end is perpetual peace. Mm-hmm. Um but then again, like, that's another thing with the the fallibility of human rationalism. It's like, how else do you approach something if not from a tele- teleological perspective? It's Unless you're looking <laughs> at something purely in the sense of, like, empiricism where you're just looking at the thing as you can experience it. But if, if you're looking at it from a normative perspective, you're automatically assuming some basis in your approach to how you understand it. Well, I... I mean, yeah, I guess any normative thing is saying how things, uh, you know, ought to be, which mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it necessarily implies one single end to sure. reach. So, I mean, yeah, that's for sure. well, I think what I'm kind of more partial to in political theory is to set instead of um, instead of trying to cut out sort of like the perfect idea of a state, I think it's probably better to come up with certain functions or ends that the state is supposed to try and achieve and then mm-hmm. it's uh, more de- like what what you should do in a certain circumstance is just sort of figuring out the government uh, how it should do to maximally achieve these certain ends or functions mm-hmm. in a given context. So I mean, that's normative, but it doesn't necessarily imply some sort of teleology. Sure, okay. Um, I mean, it, it, it does, kind of, <laughs> because it says... It, it does in one way because it says that there is a sort of certain ends that we're supposed to achieve through government. Mm-hmm. But it's not teleological in the sense that everything is moving towards an end. Right, a specific end. A specific right. end. Yeah. And it's, it's not that everything is determined towards that end. Right. Yeah. I see what you're saying. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But then, I mean, how how easily can people kind of fall into that trap, though? You know what I mean? Of assuming that there is something like that. Uh, easily, apparently. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I don't know if I would say... I don't know. I'm not going to come down on one side or the other and say it's a trap because I don't I don't have an argument. Sure. Um, yeah. Really, right now, <laughs> um, against that. But... Uh, yeah, I guess it is just conjecture, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, so the, the main thing, like, 
if you attack Kant's epistemology at a more basic level, so like at, at you know at this point, he's basing it off of two, I think two prior works, the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals and uh, the critique of practical reason. Mm-hmm. So he's already established his sort of moral epistemology and his understanding basically of like what morality is in the metaphysical sense, and now he's building off of it. So if you don't accept those two the two things below yeah. it, yeah, it does kind of like the yeah, the bottom falls off a little bit. But <laughs> um Which I mean any theory kind of yeah. presupposes as well. You know, you have to have something to ground your your whole axiom off of, I guess. So yeah, the, uh, so, yeah, the, I think the, the clearest way to sort of um, attack it is to sort of push back against the, the fundamental, like, epistemological and metaphysical basis of morality that it comes up with earlier. Because um, otherwise you're stuck with this categorical imperative. You already made the argument. Mm-hmm. And now you're stuck with it if you accepted that. <laughs> so um, you don't really have... If you've accepted his prior arguments, you don't really have much room to go in this one. <laughs> because... Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, he does... He, he backs it up again a little. And he does... He adds some other things on there, uh, uh, specifically pertaining to politics. Yeah, I think he, he talks about, like, the... Um, he does cover, like, a little bit of the practical sense of how you would achieve this normative end in the sense that it's almost futile for someone individually to try to achieve that normative goal. You have to somehow get enough people to collectively understand and, and buy into that understanding. And then with that, more often than not, I think he said that it is not only acceptable but reasonable to use some type of force in order to achieve that end um, because that's just like how you change systems apparently <laughs> according to Kant and many other theorists as well. Yeah, so, but it has to be within the limits. <laughs> right, within right. the limits. So you could yeah. use your, pri- your political prudence to do this kind of stuff but mm-hmm. can't violate people's rights. Right. Essentially. Sure. So how would he do that through force to like bring them to somebody's side? Well... Without violating. It would depend. <laughs> so, uh, he thinks you can, you know, morally punish people, but you can't just morally punish people arbitrarily. So, um, yeah, so he thinks you, you can morally punish people for violating the laws of morality or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you get somewhere along those lines. But, you have to be really careful that you're not using people as means. So, yeah, I mean, he has this idea that you, you can't use people as means. You can only see people as ends. Um, so in your sort of progression towards per, uh, perpetual peace, you you can't really be using people as a means mm-hmm. to the end of perpetual peace. That would be... No. <laughs> For him. True. <laughs> and I guess kind of to to spin off of this purely theory uh, conversation. If you want to, Bobby, go back to what we were talking about the other day Um, with kind of like U.S. imperialism and kind of relate that to what, you know, at least Kant was attempting to provide with some type of normative structure of maintaining peace. Like, first of all, I guess the question I would give you is 
it would Kant's ideology be useful in any means to the United States government? Uh, well, I mean, the United States government like violates like every single <laughs> rule he has in there for like perpetual peace, uh-huh. um, or like consistently. So, I don't think it would really be of any be of any use. And like the United States is like, I mean, it's an empire, right? And, and like, sure, it's kind of waning off a little bit, but we do like the way we like maintain our kind of superpower status, which, I mean, we're not as pronounced as we used to be, but mm-hmm. is like through force, through our military. I mean, we spend like, I think that's the largest portion of our budget is our military spending. So I, I don't think you could ever convince the United States to, you know, disband their military. And <laughs> yeah, well, if anything, it'd be like the well, United it's States. it's a process, right? I don't think it's necessarily that's the first step. But That's yeah. true. But like, I don't know. I don't know that would ever fucking happen. But like, I mean... One thing I thought was interesting is if you could kind of apply Kant's rule of, like, eventually getting rid of your armies more to, like, uh, denuclearization, right? Okay. Like, getting rid of your nuclear yeah, yeah. arsenal. And how, like, it's an interesting way to view, you know, the nukes or your nuclear arsenal more as, like, an army. Mm-hmm. And you can see, like, the well, Kant's... Yeah, it's a projection of power, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, like... Like, Kant would definitely have to take that into account if he was, like, writing today. But... Uh, what I thought was interesting how is like Libya they used to have like nuclear weapons right and then they got rid of them and I know we kind of talked about this last time but you know eventually Gaddafi he was killed and then you know his country kind of fell into chaos you know the slave trade and everything and so I feel like that's kind of uh, an example of like maybe Kant's it's not like well applied but it, it sort of does apply as like Kant's idea of like like getting rid of your army so denuclearizing but then you're kind of like stabbed in the back because I mean Libya did it to kind of you know appeal to the United States you know like kind of like be like oh we're like peaceful nation things like that but then they just get like crushed at that attempt to like show they weren't a threat mm-hmm. so I guess in that sense what Kant would say is that the global system hasn't bought into the <laughs> the use of the normative uh, understanding of of uh, rational morality, I guess. Definitely yeah. not. Oh, yeah. I think it, it is interesting because he's writing in Europe here, mm-hmm. which, like, at the time, like, freeing Europe totally of war was to be, like, with each other was, like... Unheard of. Inconceivable, yeah. essentially. I mean, they were trying, but then after that, you still have well, more wars, like World War One and World War Two, but <laughs> just you know, a couple more. <laughs> some more wars, you know. yeah. uh, <laughs> but I mean, you do have now well, a sort of, uh, essentially, for perpetual peace between. Mm-hmm. You know, with the, is something that he's kind of like what he's talking about, where he, you know he says it's not like a peace treaty because a peace treaty always leaves open right. the idea of future war mm-hmm. I mean now it's sort of like inconceivable that Europe would go to war with each other like mm-hmm. you can't even imagine right like, or at least like within the EU or whatever within or the UN I mean yeah I can't imagine the like the NATO Germany like bombing <laughs> the UK anymore like yeah, that yeah. would it's insane now right, right. Yeah, round three <laughs> they do it again <laughs> And I think it is interesting because he does. I think in his more when he's talking more practically about like how this could be achieved, he does bring up 
it having to kind of be achieved through commerce mm-hmm. and sort of commercial competition and relations using that sort of self-interested thing, turning it on itself and creating this, like, equilibrium in which they, like, understand that war just itself is a bad idea. So I think he had something there. Right, because, I mean, think about what that, what the the perpetual peace really is in terms of, like, a rational, moral uh, end. It's the discontinuation of war, right? I mean, naturally. So by by that, uh, I guess, uh, definition, then you would want to put in systems that put people in like an already, I guess, like socialized people in in a, in a sense to to think in a certain way of already predisposing them of not looking to remove themselves from the current system that they're in, if that makes sense. So like if so. The reason why you're putting these laws and, and normative rules is because you want to create a system, a society, in that they value peace more than war because it's beneficial to them because they've come to that conclusion rationally, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, in essence, you're creating systems of, of peace by removing the possibility of war, which is something that we see today, I mean, to yeah. some degree at least. Yeah. No, I mean, I think he says that almost kind of says something very similar when he's talking about the uh, he's trying to draw the the analogy of the the state being created through self interest mm-hmm. kind of naturally and how that can kind of happen um, on the international stage he says something like it, when it comes to the creation of these like republics wasn't because the people who made them were moral mm-hmm. instead it's like good societies or good states, constitutions that make good people. So I think this would fit into that if you're saying like, well, maybe at first it's kind of like a self-interest thing when you look at Europe, why they like stopped, you know, having wars all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. but like, all now, those economic treaties, right? You know, all these economic treaties and you have all these economic reasons, but all, I mean, now I don't think, like, I don't think the only reason Germany doesn't bomb the UK is just economics. Yeah. Is ec- just yeah. economics. There's sort of, there's more moral mm-hmm. um, grounding, essentially, to that mm-hmm. peace between the two countries. Mm-hmm. So the, I guess that, in t- to bring back an old concept from I guess political theory class is that sense of like political legitimacy is once you create this perpetual peace and it's shown to be viable then you're creating a new order of legitimacy in the in the system that you're creating so in that sense you're in like cuz I, I think that's something that he he brought up when he was talking about starting new constitutions through violent means is that you're not necessarily using violence as a means to produce that constitution, more so that you're, you're like the the end product is changing the society as a whole. Okay. With his stuff on res, I, I read, I had to read through his like little paragraph or passage on revolutions a couple times. Yeah. It seemed like at least what I got, he's coming out against revolutions. Mm-hmm. He like doesn't want them. Right. Because it's the publicity thing. Um, he says, like, 
it's not something at the core, kind of like state level, something is immoral if you can't make it, if it has to stay kind of secret in order to actually be successful. So like if you make it public and like everyone would just like turned against you, that's sort of immoral. So at a revolution level, at least what he argues, and I'm not totally convinced about this, <laughs> is that sort of like if you're a revolutionary, you're gonna have to keep it secret because if you make everything public, then it, people are kind of gonna turn on you. Ah. Yeah, okay. And All by right. everything, you mean like the necessary means to bring the revolution about? Or what do you mean? Like, so. Because I guess you could make the argument that you could create a. Uh, the environment for revolution that doesn't necessarily depend on violent means, you know? Yeah, I think he did, he said something about that. But, like, again, with that argument, I'm not totally sure, like, what? I don't know if that argument works just in general, because even if you accept the publicity thing, like, if you're saying, like, as a popular revolution, right, um, say, like, the majority of the country is behind you, and you pu- you publicize it. The only people who are turning against you are like the established government. So mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what extent his sort of publicity, like how many, like what percent of the population has to start turning against you if you, great question, you know, like in order to make it invalid, because um, it's sort of an, I guess it's. The, the only way I can think about it would almost make it circular. He says this at one point. It, everyone, you can know a priori mm-hmm. that everyone would like kind of turn against it because it is whatever you're trying to do is unjust. But that seemed really circular to me because you're trying to figure out whether or not it was just. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> yeah, what no. to do with that <laughs> argument at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't fucking know, man. I'm, I'm kind of bewildered here. I, mean, I don't know. No worries. No, I feel like that's the whole point. Is you're supposed to be bewildered, and hopefully you can slowly, <laughs> slowly pick that. Like yeah. just, yeah, just, just being lost all the time. time. <laughs> that sounds kind of awful, yeah. though. It's like, it's really lost it. No, I mean, it's fine here. It's, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I just spent, like, <laughs> like forever, you know, that's... Uh, oh, yeah. That's been my experience with most philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> just being lost forever. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you get, like, a grain of something, and you're like, I understand this. Yeah. <laughs> And then you read one more sentence, and you're like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. God. Uh, no, that's what I had to read this, like, at least passages a couple times, because I would read something and be like, I know what Khan is saying, and then I would read further and be like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't know all. Yeah. So I had this thought earlier. It's not really, sub- like, it doesn't have a lot of substance, but, like, were you guys trying to say, while discussing the European Union, that's kind of, like, the closest realization of Kant's perpetual peace? If you just kind of view, like, like Europe yeah. as, like, an isolated, like, area, as, like, his conception of, like, the world, essentially. I would say a better example rather than... Wait, what did you say? The EU? Yeah, the European Union. Okay, yeah, then, never mind, then I agree with you. I thought you said yeah. the UN at first. Oh, so, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, no, I think the EU is a, is a great example, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of the reasons why the EU works is because 
of like the context in which it took place mm-hmm. because like Europe was devastated and then there was only a, there was a singular essentially a singular actor that was able to rebuild everything you know what I mean so the, mm-hmm. you have that um, I guess the the issue of um, what is the the collective action problem isn't there essentially yeah. so like you don't have to bargain with people in order to meet some mutual like means of producing that end you can just kind of implement it and fortunately enough you know they did a fairly decent job with the EU so I don't know and then you have like things like the UN where it's the opposite it's like you know there, there's so many different interpretations of what the UN should be that it doesn't do a good job at any one of them you know mm-hmm. what I mean yeah. so I just uh, I didn't know this the, it says the, the EU was founded 1993 the EU, yeah, the is that the that, is that the monetary that has to be like the monetary, um, whatever. Oh, it's I think. the European Union is a political and economic union, twenty-seven member states. Yeah, because yeah. I think the foundation technically of the EU was the coal and steel treaty or something like that that mm-hmm. France and Germany um, signed. That essentially, like, it was like one of the first treaties, which is similar to the perpetual peace that, that Kant talks about, is creating a treaty to, you know, limit the means of war. Mm-hmm. And so coal and steel, automa- or maybe it wasn't coal, it was like something else. But basically, like, steel is a huge resource yeah. for producing war, especially with the conventional warfare at the time. Mm-hmm. So I think that, at least from, like, the foundation of what the EU eventually became, is, like, kind of a continuation mm-hmm. over time. It just, like, d- with each new treaty... It was a different, like, part of that economic interdependence mm-hmm. that was created, and I think that's what the EU does a good job at. It has like a plan of like we want a collective society, mm-hmm. and it's like a slow progression into that. Whereas like the UN, I think it's a lot more forced. Yeah, so. UN's definitely like stranger when compared to the EU. I do think that the EU satisfies a lot of the perpetual peace like conditions, like. Um, being able to travel to another state and not be treated as, like, a foreigner. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's definitely one thing that the EU, like, satisfies because, you know, you're able to just kind of freely travel throughout Europe uh, mm-hmm. for the most part. Right. And, like, yeah, it's very simple and easy. And then, I don't know if you could <coughs> say that it satisfies the, you know, you can't have any spies or you know, anything of that nature going on. Yeah. Because that, you know, definitely is taking place. And then... There's another one, uh, one of his other conditions was, oh yeah, no independent states, large or small, shall come under the dominion of another state. So, you know, obviously there's no like domination going on in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd, I'd be interested, like, know how he would apply this to like economic warfare? Because right now he's just kind of thinking mm-hmm. about- That's um, true, yeah. Like physical warfare. He's talking about physical warfare and he's kind of talking, he, he, he at least mentions, the possibility of um, commerce uh, and the progression of commerce in like uh, creating uh, as a means to create perpetual peace, uh, which is in some ways true. Like in even if you extend it out to like uh, countries that we're not super friendly with. A lot of times, if especially if they're larger countries, it's just our we use our economic interdependence to have a like 
well, essentially warfare. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know if you'd have to create a different kind of set of rules to yeah, deal no, with that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, the, the, the rules have changed in terms of how power is, like, um, negotiated, I guess, but the ultimate, like, action is still there. It's just changing the parameters, I guess. Rather than being, like, a physical battle, I guess, it's now a transaction of goods and services. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and you, like, an, an economic war is not just an economic war. You know, if you, if you experience an economic downturn, people will die. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I um, guess... I mean, that's why... I, if you were to look at a different perspective of like a, like contractualism with John Locke, one of the main reasons of why he put the, necess- the necessity of having protection of private property was that very thing, is economic security, right? I mean, the security to be able to afford your own prosperity within the state mm-hmm. is now being amplified, at least with cons- on pers- uh, perpetual peace, to a much broader scale. So I guess that's where the economics can come into as well. It's like, how do you afford people, uh, I guess, that prosperity, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I guess, like, you could probably make it analogous to something on the end of I mean, because we make warfare kind of analogous to typically, like, in the state of nature, to just, like, individual violence, violence mm-hmm. between just individuals. Um, I guess you could probably make the sort of economic... Well, no, no, I'm on a different topic. Never mind. <laughs> I'm just going to start talking about economic domination, which is a different thing, I guess. But... Uh, I'm not sure exactly at what point economic coercion can be sort of ethical or not. Well, I mean, I, I think that's something he explicitly says you can't do. You're not supposed yeah. to coerce. Oh, yeah, you can't coerce. <laughs> but, I, I, yeah, I guess the difficulty would be com- coming up with a line between just, like, normal pract- like economic practice and economic coercion. Yeah. I mean, he does talk about, like, national debts and, like, the credit system and how it should be forbidden. Right. Because it's, oh, like, yeah. a hindrance to perpetual peace. Right. So wouldn't he just forbid... Um, you know, embargoes and, like, uh, sanctions. Yeah, or, like, loaning government's money mm-hmm. yeah. in, in return for some type of political gain. Yeah, no. <laughs> You'd probably be opposed to that. I mean. Right, yeah, at least in, within this body of text. Yeah. Uh, uh, is there anything else we should cover? <laughs> I don't know. Special piece. Put this um, notes. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about there, Bobby? Honestly, you guys know a lot more about this than I do. I've been hearing some words I don't know the definition of. <laughs> yeah, like, I've heard them before. But you can like, definitely relate it to anything else. Really. Oh, I mean, not anything else, but yeah. <laughs> they're they're like. If you were to, if you were to read Kant and just rationalize it within his own terminology and his mm-hmm. frame of reference, that's 
I feel like automatically putting you at a disadvantage because there's no way to know 100% what he was thinking, mm-hmm. even within his own words, because, yeah. you know, there is that disconnect between, you know, you and him in that sense. Mm-hmm. So I think the best thing you can do is rationalize it in some contemporary way that gives you a means of projecting it in the real world. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So even if it's not a direct translation, you can look at how there are differences in what you perceive and what mm-hmm. he's saying and then create a formulation based on that. Yeah, I no, I know what you mean. I just meant, like, I'm not very well-versed in, like, theory, you okay. know, like, engaging in that way. Uh, so I definitely need to, like, work on that. I mean, I'll be taking a bunch of, you know, classes. I mean, right now I'm taking, like, aesthetics and fucking knowledge and reality. So those are, like, not really related, like, directly to political theory. Mm-hmm. Or, but, yeah, I still have trouble with that. Uh, I don't know. I mean... A lot of this stuff is just like, I feel like it's the conditions that, you know, like the world today don't satisfy is pretty obvious. I mean, I feel like it'd be kind of redundant to like be talking about how like, oh, these states have colonies still or they still have like this kind of jurisdiction over other countries that's violating this condition and then the whole spies thing. and Or mm-hmm. you can't, you know, interfere with the constitution or government of another state, blah, blah, blah. Like, we, we've already kind of talked about that, so... You guys got any other topics you want to talk about? I just—I don't know. I guess like the question would be whether. I mean, it seems like Kant thinks these sorts of rules are necessary for perpetual peace. And I guess the question is: one, are they necessary for perpetual perpetual peace? And two. We haven't made a ton of progress in a lot of area, these areas <laughs> um, since this book yeah. was written, you know, sure. a long time ago. <laughs> Is it something that states will ever actually do? Mm-hmm. If it's not, if they won't, then can we ever actually get to perpetual peace? Yeah, I think at least in the second point that you gave, I, I would assume that Kant would say that the reason why it hasn't necessarily happened so far is because people haven't been aiming for that normative uh, uh, rational whatever you know like the like if you're not pursuing the absolute morality then why would you assume that things would naturally you know manifest themselves in the way that he said that it would if you did you know what I mean so he well he mentions at some point that he thought it might it okay. might just, like, naturally manifest itself in the same way that a state it, would. What do you mean, a state would? Or, like, I mean, you're, you know, based off of your, like, state of nature, whatever. Mm. Like, your favorite state of nature sort of thing. Okay. Um, the way that you can take self-interested individuals and they can, uh, over time, Still get, create to this, uh, get to this okay. um, sort of ideal kind of state. Mm-hmm. Like knowingly or not, essentially. Yeah, I mean, he, he says it's kind of like against their will, <laughs> almost. <laughs> he, he, he uses those words, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if he's gonna <clears throat> stick to it. Uh, but I, I guess it doesn't really matter too much for now. I guess the main thing is: are those necessary? Mm-hmm. Like, are, do we have to do these to get to perpetual peace? You know, if they are necessary and we aren't ever going to do them, then 
it seems like we won't ever get perpetual peace. Mm-hmm. If they aren't necessary, we won't, won't ever, you know, follow them. Maybe we could. And maybe we would, uh, maybe in the future at some point, we would actually follow some of these. Uh, but I guess, yeah. So the two questions is, is it necessary and will we ever actually do them? Uh, like from a completely non-aligned position, like is it necessary? Yeah, no, uh, no so yeah, you don't have to be like from Kant's perspective. I would say necessary in the sense that strictly it's going to look exactly like these points that he's delivered. Maybe, maybe not. I don't think that's necessarily um, like the important part. I think the important part is at least the normative end result that he's trying to advocate for in the sense of like what is perpetual peace because I I feel like the ways in which you structure the systems of power dynamics could have an infinite you know means of of manifesting themselves like you said it could happen completely naturally just out of self-interest or it could come from an explicit um, uh, adherence to these rules or it could come from, you know, whatever else just happens to produce itself from, like, random chance and culture or whatever. So, in that sense, I don't think that you need to look at Kant as the be-all, end-all. But in the sense that he he looks at it from kind of, like... I, I, I want to avoid from using, like, the word determinism and, like, say that there is, like, a rational ideal. But, I mean, at least, like looking back at like Plato's world of forms like if you believe that there is necessarily a pure ideal then there you like it is reasonable then to assume that there is like a pure rationality in the sense that there is a common goal that people can strive towards that is feasible you know what I mean and I know that Plato said the world of forms is completely you know not <laughs> obtainable but uh, at least at least I, I feel like Reaching the rational conclusion is at least striving to reach an, a normative end. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. whether you'll reach it or not is beside the point, I think, in, in the grand scheme of things. So long as you're continuously improving your situation towards that goal, that's the best you can do. Okay. So... So you're unsure whether or not we get we get there? Is that what you're saying? Not only that, but I don't think it really matters. It doesn't matter you know, whether like, or not we get there. Because <laughs> I, I think that's like a I think that's a moot point. Because let's say let's say we do everything perfectly and we get there. Well, then great, we got there. You know what I mean? But arguing along the way of whether we'll get there isn't going to get you closer. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, he does. He does. Well, I guess you, I mean, uh, I guess more what I'm talking about is the specific, like, things that he's talking about. Like, mm-hmm. get rid of your armies. Mm-hmm. Get rid of spies. Right. Are, are these necessary steps to get to perpetual peace? Like, do we need to do these things in order to get to perpetual peace? Could we get to perpetual peace without it? Because mm-hmm. even if you're saying we need to strive towards this thing, we need to know which way to strive. Yeah, what does that look like? Like, (laughs) um, Uh, uh, We can't just, like, start striving. Um, And then, second, 
could we ever actually do these? Like, is it foreseeable that the United States government at some point would just not have an army? Or maybe the United States government, you know, it's like collapses way into the future and something else doesn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't have an army. But because if these things are necessary and it's totally unforeseeable that any nation will ever actually abide by them, then we're stuck. Right. This is less of a normative question and more of a empirical question about, like, could we get to perpetual peace? Is it even possible, practically speaking? I don't think so. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Great question. I guess, um, yeah, we should, we should, <laughs> we should write our own, uh, <laughs> systems on, uh, perpetual peace. Do you guys think any kind of, like, peace is possible where there's, like, almost no conflict, at least between states in the world? But do you think it's, like, you know, this kind of endless war kind of thing. There's always going to be a war going on. I think that everything, at least in the way that you would define those terms, is relative. Mm-hmm. So in the sense that, like, if you were to ask the question, what is war, in the sense that it could it could be a possibility because humans are rational but at the same time flawed in that mm-hmm. rationality, I think that you can't necessarily get rid of it completely. Unless you somehow alter the way that humans just behave, like, mm-hmm. but then again, that's assuming that we behave in a certain way naturally. But I, I don't know. I I don't think there is a one hundred percent distinct, perfect realization of any normative goal. But insofar that you can create systems that approach them as best as possible, I think that's possible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, if you were to create as best of a perfect system as you can, mm-hmm. that's definitely feasible. Because wh- what else can you do other than, like, achieve, like, work towards an end? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, because yeah. then what, a, what are we here for? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> what's the yeah. point? What's the point of being here if we can't do anything? <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Like, strive for perfection, yeah. for perpetual peace. But it's never going to happen. It well, it depends not. what you, again, again, like it depends what you would define as perpetual peace. You know, would, like if if the peace is con- uh, convenient, I guess is it is, is mm-hmm. a safe word. But if it's convenient insofar as people mutually understand that it is in their best scenario to remain within this understanding of perpetual peace, then you've reached it. You know what I mean? Even if it doesn't necessarily one hundred percent suit that complete rational moralism that Kant might argue for. Like, if, I think, because ultimately, I think the study of, of political theory is creating systems of value that people can buy into and essentially, like, like politically in terms of how do people enact their own will into the system as a whole, and then vice versa. How does the system then interact with people on an individual scale? So with that as your definition of political theory, 
then you would have to say, what is the means or what is the end of the state? You know, what is the purpose of the state? It is to reach a conclusion of that mutual relationship in its most perfect form. So that would, in my opinion, would be as close as you can get of people collectively buying into the system and vice versa, the system protecting the people as best as possible in that pursuit of them being, or of them pr producing the legitimacy of, you know, the state itself. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think I kind of got it. And then now you have to apply that to the international system, which is what <laughs> perpetual peace is about. So, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, I guess you can argue then the EU is an example of how we're striving towards that because mm -hmm. you're creating systems of political expression that transcend uh, traditional understandings of what a state is because you're broadening the scope and the perspective and including as many people from different backgrounds as possible, which I would argue like introduces a new element of legitimacy because more people are able to express themselves within the system. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you can argue the opposite, say that providing more di distinct opinions weakens the legitimacy of the state because you're weakening each person individually, their political efficacy in terms of like the proportion of their ability to change the whole s system. Like how, like essentially like if there's a hundred people in a polity, you as an individual have a lot more power than if you lived in a polity that had a thousand people, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. just because of like you know, the proportion of yeah. people's wills. So, but in that sense, I think that's uh, beside the point because if you're to make a system that inherently protects people's wills, then you wouldn't need them necessarily wanting to maximize their own political efficacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then they wouldn't have to, like, engage as much and, like, fight for what exactly they want. Right. If it already, like, catered it, to the If it's needs. already naturally yeah. protected, right. Because mm -hmm. yeah. I'd be interested to know, like, how... <laughs> like, how much of the sort of rationalism is required to accept Kant's position. Because it seems like, on the one hand, he wants to maintain this, like, sort of, like, a high degree of, like, theoretical rationalism. Like, theoretically, mm -hmm. you can reason to all of these mm -hmm. um, principles, and that gives them objective grounding. But, I think maybe one kind of one kind of benefit of this system is it doesn't necessarily require everyone to be rational, necessarily. Um, I, at least, this is what I'm working with right now. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. Because uh, <laughs> there's, like, there's other people, like Habermas and, like, a lot of the, uh, the other uh, people working around the Enlightenment. They, they put a lot of, like, pressure on the capabilities of reason. Um, when we kind of know people aren't actually that rational. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'm wondering if this still kind of holds up in a sort of modern atmosphere where there's kind of a growing disillusionment 
with the idea of a pure, like, perfect reason, especially when it comes into the practical sphere. Well, I think, yeah, if anything, that's precisely right, because it's not practical in the sense that the systems that we that we can perceive don't uh, produce rationality as a value that's collective. You know what I mean? Like, people don't value rationalism. They value... Or, well, rationalism for rationalism's sake, I guess. Like, they don't value just being able to reason because that's not going to get you anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, there are different systems that in, in place that are much more practical for different reasons. Like, for instance, if you're born poor, what would be rational for you to do is... I mean, obviously, there are different ways that you can explicitly do this, but, like, essentially get an education, right? Like, if you're, like, because we've concluded that the best means of producing the, the, the way to get up the social ladder is by increasing your education levels, which then gives you a better chance of getting a better job in whatever sense, you know what I mean? So, like, the, in that sense, that's how you would want to value rationalism. But there are systems that work against that, in the sense that there's nothing inherent when you're born into a community that wants you to strive to a better under, like better position other than your self-interest. But the problem is you're acting against the self-interest of other people and other communities. So like let's say, for instance, like the pharmaceutical company. The pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company's interests and like the lobby itself and all and all of those entrenched uh, Systems, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, are acting in a certain way that automatically bar you from pursuing a certain existence, let's say. So if that's true, if, if that's a given, then your ability to be as rational as possible is automatically hindered. You see what I'm saying? So like the systems that we value are not inherent in the sense that we want to value collective uh, r rationality, I guess, if you will. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, oh so um, I guess here what I'm kind of talking about with like val about like valuing or the devaluation of rationalism is not so much like that we don't, it's not uh, about the valuing of it as much as there's like you see a growing amount of people who are like moral, like relativists or, um, or sort of relativists in general, or peop people because uh, well, you know around time of Kant, yeah. you know in the Enlightenment, you're like reason is this sort of like mm -hmm. high, incredibly high thing that can do all this right. stuff. Like if you're just supremely rational, you could figure out all of these things, <laughs> and. I think there's sort of increasing... I mean, when, when we were... Uh, that's a lot of kind of what I was focusing on in our class about religion. Mm -hmm. The main difficulty with bringing religion into politics for all of these rationalist uh, Enlightenment era or theories or the theories that are kind of based on them, like contractualism or uh, discourse theory or, mm -hmm. or, just, or Kantianism in general, uh, are based around the, these like huge capabilities of reason and the sort of 
addition, the movement of people to sort of push religion back into the public sphere is sort of, in one way, a recognition that there, there just are all these religious people and that maybe we're not all super rational. There's that sort of empirical uh, claim, but also a sort of normative-type claim um, and saying that these religions have these sort of valuable cognitive contents that maybe um, just this like supreme rationalism, like Kantian rationalism is just uh, doesn't exist necessarily and what mm-hmm. do you or isn't as necessary as we would have thought maybe. yeah so I mean what do you do with Kant and any sort of political theory based on a sort of idea that you could just like reason up straight up to morality mm-hmm. um, if you lose kind of faith in that how do you what do you even do with this theory in general I I mean I think that the first thing that it would depend on is like you said the capacity of individuals in understanding that cl- like the, the the claims of those rationalist thinkers you know what I mean because if you're automatically at least f- arguments from, like, re- more religious arguments are essentially, this is my camp, and this is the way I've been socialized, and it is opposite or not compatible with what you're saying, therefore you're wrong, essentially. So, with that understanding, you would assume that those people that would claim, and like, that would make an argument in that way don't have necessarily the capacity to use their own rationality to, I guess, free themselves from that. I don't want to say free because that's automatic. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah, it's like that. Do, do you see what I'm trying to say? What? Like, like yeah, no, not, no, I know. I mean, Kant, Kant uses almost that exact language, and he's yeah. like, uh, what? It's like enlightenment is uh, liberation from like yeah. uh, your self-imposed immaturity. Kind of, kind of. But I mean, it, but supplant religion with anything else. Really, yeah. if you're if you're creating presupposed knowledge based off of conceptions that you haven't personally thought and like really t- like really developed an an idea conception of fundamentally what they are then do you really believe in that you know what i mean like how, because i think that's what rationalism really is it's you as an individual being able to interpret and fully understand to the best of your abilities what you're arguing and what you're thinking is or can be or whatever so if you're unable to place that step then I think you're automatically kind of shooting yourself in the foot in the sense of the grounds in which your argument stands. So in that sense, there is a value in rationalism. Is it universally accepted? No. <laughs> so that's the, I feel like that's the real issue. And that's kind of something that I, I covered in, in, in the, the final paper for that uh, class, is that the best way that you can combat that and by accepting religion in the public sphere is by creating a normative understanding of, of citizenship ethics through a pluralist uh, conception of, of education. 
So by introducing different conceptions to people at a young age, you're giving them the tools to then essentially pick and choose, but in a, in a way that is uh, separated from any cultural like dependency on the introduction of knowledge. You know what I mean? Okay, so in this, are you sort of arguing that in, like, rationalism, like, you can you can rationally get to morality is, or, or some sorts of moral laws through reason? Is that sort of what you're... Is that at least part of what you're arguing? Because you're saying, like, there's this... There's these like religious people or people well, um, I th- not yeah. fully. I guess what fully I'm thought through there. Mm-hmm. Or are you saying? I, are you defining like rationalism as yeah. just like the the thinking through what your sort of ideas and having these arguments? Yeah. For them? In the sense that I would say that morality is arbitrary. In this, like, there's. In the sense that like, what you would assume as moral. Because there is a limitation on how far you can use, like, any certain, I guess, empirical way of of finding, like, a foundation for that, (laughs) makes morality as a, like, as a, as a idea abstract, right? Because, I, I mean, what I might value is different from what someone else might value for reasons completely different from one another. Okay, so you're just like uh, you're just like tossing Kant into like a garbage. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, but not necess- <laughs> but not necessarily. I still value his use of rationalism to find a morality that works for everyone. You know what I mean? Like to say that there is one rational moral is not necessarily uh mutually exclusive with the sense that morality in essence is arbitrary. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is actually kind of... I guess this is my paper on... This is kind of like what Habermas is getting... Because he's going... He's kind of coming from a Kantian tradition. Mm -hmm. But instead of having us get to the moral principle through just our reasoning alone and just, like, whenever in your study... It has to happen as like a conversation between everyone in society, mm-hmm. and through that process, they sort of like shape their wills, right? And like, right. And get to a single moral conclusion that they can, like, uh, something that they can all will, essentially. Yeah. So I would and take that from a more individual perspective and on a more basic sense of like from birth. You know what I mean? You have you're essentially a blank slate. Like if you're if you're in the empiricist tradition, you would assume that. Or well, okay. Now I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but but uh, from what I can perceive, when you're born, you're you're a blank slate essentially, and everything that you acquire as knowledge are things that you either personally experience or you assume is true based off of what you value in the sense of how you acquire that knowledge. So essentially from the source of where you're uh, uh, receiving it from. So that's where the issue with like morality becomes extremely important is because what you view as moral 
automatically defines what you interpret as valuable knowledge. And in that sense, I would say rationality is a way that you can remove yourself from that, f- from that flaw and say that there is knowledge that you can achieve in, like, for an example, in an empiricist way through steps, through means of rationalism that, that removes itself from these kind of biases. Okay, so in this picture, we have these varying moralities, and or, or it, it's in some some way arbitrary or not. Yeah, it's not grounded. Right. Grounded in the sense that it's a it's a cultural yeah conception. So it's not. It's not. It doesn't have a grounding of a universal law. No. And not necessarily. These values, in some ways, influence what sort of knowledge we find valuable. Or how did you phrase it? <laughs> well, because I mean, I, from the conception of universal law, what, like, give me an example of universal law, essentially. Uh, what kind of universal law? Like the golden rule, or something. Like a, Is that what you're like, a about? like a moral one, or like a physical yeah. one, or. Like killing is bad, or like a force equals mass times acceleration. No, well, I, well, I guess I mean no. Okay, from the from the from a moral perspective, yeah. okay, I guess, yeah, because that's I mean, what we're talking well, about, yeah, more like, or less. Killing, killing is, is bad, bad. right? Don't so, lie. so I guess from that perspective, I would argue that that's not necessarily universal because you can look at societies across you know history essentially, and in that sense, like. Um, I don't know exactly the tribe, but there's like a, a case study essentially of like a, a, a pygmy tribe in, in some island in the Pacific <laughs> where like killing is not necessarily viewed as like a terrible thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like that's, that's now because think about it, like what, what yeah. grounds that conception other than a mutually accepted perception of what I would view as bad for me is also bad for you, uh, right? Well, ah, uh, ah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. I'm not super on board the moral relativism chain. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Kant is definitely not. Right, so if right. you believe this, you've thrown away all of his his <laughs> two books that he's built this on. <laughs> what do you now do with this? <laughs> it means nothing, I guess. I, mean, I don't know. Because the whole idea that reason has prescribed us an end, which is. Um, the perpetual peace Mm -hmm. and that we have these universal moral obligations these states have to do that means nothing (laughs) because it's all subjective so I have no objective um, there's no objective necessity behind any of these things why (laughs) (laughs) just why from, from from what I'm saying is that at least from the case of what you would claim as objective is subjective. <laughs> so to say that you can't have an objective universal law in the sense that it's available, I would say sure. But in the sense that it's perfectly objective, that's cause for concern. You know what I mean? So well, okay, so I mean you could like you can you can you can postulate <laughs> something as objective and 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 put it at that pedestal, essentially, and then formulate the rest of your conceptions based on that. And that's perfectly fine in the sense that you stay true to that, essentially. 
You know what I mean? Like everything else wouldn't matter at that point as long as it's as long as it's universally applied and applicable to the rest of your formulations from therein. You know. I so I mean that's helpful as an exercise to sort of make sense of your own conceptualizations of things mm-hmm. and um, so to sort of give yourself your own sort of sort of grounding and understanding. However, like in this, this is a normative thing. He's saying you need mm-hmm. to do these things, states. Like right. you need to get rid of your armies. If it's not objective, if it has no objective reality, I don't see how you could turn it into a duty. Given that the only concept of duty in this sense is socially enforced mm-hmm. and it's more of a descriptive thing with no objective normative value. So all of your normative theorizing about you know universal laws and what people should be doing and what people are duty bound to do is maybe useful as a way to conceptualize things to yourself but you have no way of placing them as obligations moral obligations on anyone else except maybe through cultural reinforcement but which again is not the same thing mm-hmm. because that's just cultural reinforcement there's if you don't have any objective normative standards, you can't do any objective normative reasoning. And that's you need that to be able to tell people what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. Which, I mean, you can abandon it, but then this whole thing is like, what? What? <laughs> what, what? What is this now? It's like not anything of value because you've come up with these rules that are just subjective and yeah. have there's no sort of uh, objective uh, sort of duty or obligation which you can actually impose on anyone unless they subjectively agree with these principles and impose it on themselves. Yep. So this is just like... <laughs> 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 yeah, no, you said it yourself. <laughs> there you go. That's the basis of reality. Well, you're welcome. So, man, Kyle would be rolling over in his grave, right? <laughs> He'd be so mad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. When you, what were you talking about earlier? You were talking about how, like, <clears throat> people have, like, moral beliefs and things like that. And mm. that... Um, they'll, like, use that to determine what knowledge is valuable and that rationalism should be employed to, like, think through their moral values so that they can make sure that their, like, belief system actually, like, makes sense to them mm-hmm. instead of just blindly accepting it. Was that, like, the point you were trying to make earlier? Or, yeah, I, yeah oh, okay. I guess. Yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure. So, uh, does it matter if you reason through it? Like, I guess maybe, like, it would matter, like, say you're a religious person, I guess it would maybe matter if you care about unifying your normative principles under a, uh, you know, a certain umbrella. Like, if you had understood uh, 
certain you had some certain things given to you by your religion, and you also have a set of moral intuitions or whatever mm-hmm. that you would reason in order to get them like um, top or aligned. Or even if you just had the intuitions, that you'd reason about these intuitions and their roots in order to make sure that they were all aligned. But even if if there's no objective values or normative standards, you don't even. You could do that, or you can not do that. I don't know. It depends on your own subjective valuations of things. So whether or not this task of, of getting them in line is even valuable is dependent on your own subjective uh, set of values. Yeah, and I would say, <laughs> I, w- I would argue that, that what makes that even more right is that's the world we live in. No? That's true. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> All right, do you think there's, like, an ob- objective truth that you can get to through, like, rationalism? Or? Not through rationalism. I have my own theory, kind of pet theory I've worked on for a while. I don't know how tenable it is. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I mean, my my kind of theory, in a nutshell, is that uh, in certain ways, a lot of the way... Um, essentially, for anything normative, when we're reasoning normatively, we... You could pick out various things from any sort of situation. Like, you know, when you talk about um, the, the trolley problem or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, you have these different vari- variations, and you can pick out all sorts of different uh, diff- sort of differences between the cases. But the only way that you can actually sort of connect to someone and give them an argument that makes sense to their, you know, moral way is for them to actually find value in whatever you're picking out. Mm-hmm. That makes it not arbitrary, so they have to have, sort of find value in that thing. And in some ways, that's connected to um, emotion, which uh, basically what I've tried to do is take a theory of moral epistemology which rooted on emotion, which is mm-hmm. sort of inherently subjective, but then root that in an Aristotelian conception of virtue, um, because Aristotle has these like virtues of character, which is basically um, your the way that you emotionally react to things. So courage is emotionally reacting in the right kinds of ways to certain situations, and that's what having the virtue of character of courage is. So this is the way. Um, and basically, those are then rooted in um, sort of an idea of like human perfection or human happiness, essentially. The idea is that there's a certain human life, which is, like, a good life to live, essentially. It's like we're all, you know, we have all these different organs, and our, they're made in different ways, and they interact in different ways. And our brain, or our minds, they are structured in a certain way. And this all gives us a certain kind of, like, generally human life. This, like, sets us up for a certain kind of life which would be good for us, essentially. In a way that, like, a life of a bird would not because they're structured differently. Mm -hmm. And so it's because of the way that we're structured. Like, part of um, living a good life, and I think something that's necessary for kind of living a happy life, life or a healthy life is finding value in people outside of yourself Mm -hmm. essentially Um, 
And that's kind of wrapped up in this virtue of character kind of thing, the way that we emotionally react in certain ways. It gets more complicated because I had to tie that into reason. But I guess, like, my... my if I was to describe morality, it would be, um, like, morality is um, the sorts of actions that follow from having a healthy uh, understanding that other people outside of you have value. And so that could lead in multiple directions, but it significantly constrains the um, sorts of actions that are, are um, sort of feasible. Like, if you... Cause if you well, is if you don't like value other people outside of you to the point where you're fine with just like murdering them, <laughs> like there's something wrong. Yeah. I'm not convinced that you can live a like good or happy life if you have those sorts of dispositions or values. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever tried it? I have not. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> um, but I guess the um, it's sort of partially in the way that like. The way that you value yourself in mm. some, some ways has to reflect in the way that you value other people. Yeah, and no, if you I totally devalue the people outside of yourself. And on top of that, I've like uh, it's key to having good social relationships that you care about. You just have find a general value in people outside of yourself. So if you sort of through it's sort of like indirectly through well-being that you're able to then derive a certain um, at least general moral ideas which have objective reality not through the actions or or things about the actions or the consequences of themselves in the way that you're reasoning um, like epistemologically they're not rooted there though you may reason about them about the actions and their consequences. But all that reasoning is ultimately rooted in the sort of, um, uh, a sort of Aristotelian type of perfectionism where you're like, an idea of what constitutes well-being for a person. And so the idea of morality is rooted in what happiness is and what it is to be human, essentially. This was my idea. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if it works, <laughs> but it's. I've played around with it for a while. I'm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of complications, and I'm thinking about just trashing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's a great step. Yeah. <laughs> you just put it up forth to us. Yeah, like, I might get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> I might just trash it. Yeah. What about you, Alejandro? Though? Uh, I mean, I would love to make up something on the spot because honestly yeah. I haven't thought of it but we're actually out of time oh true so yeah, yeah. The, uh, the sound booth that we're currently in is overdue in terms oh. of the time slot so we gotta, we gotta wrap this up yeah. people are just lining up outside <laughs> <laughs> go back in yeah apparently they, ch- they charge $25 per day that it's overdue so I hope that starts like 24 hours after yeah Wait, day- what do you mean what? well I just got an email it says uh, of what per day what was it the room yeah, so it's it's like a time slot. Yeah. So I'm assuming that they'll charge me like tomorrow. 
if, if, we're, like, if I were to like it? no if, well <laughs> if I were to like hold the keys I guess because oh, oh, I'm, oh, I'm assuming oh, it's a, oh, I'm assuming keys. it's a blanket it's yeah. a blanket policy for okay. all equipment yeah so uh, okay I was thinking man like stay in here for like <laughs> yeah. yeah just have the lights on just sitting in here occupy the sound booth they find us like half dead like just arguing about epistemology yeah yeah oh my god yeah, yeah. but yeah alright that's uh, that's how we're gonna end it so Good shit, I hope uh, I hope everyone that's listening still after the hour and a half that we've been talking <laughs> enjoyed uh, enjoyed it even just a little bit that would make me happy but yeah alright thank uh, thanks guys for listening we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next time bye bye